Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Hemant Mehta. This is Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. We're here today with Pam Mueller. Pam may be best known as a frequent contestant on Jeopardy, where she's won more than $180,000 during her many, many episodes, including being the champion of the 2000 College Tournament. She's also worked on Howard Dean's 2004 presidential campaign, graduated from Harvard Law School, and is now a grad student in psychology at Princeton University. So, you know, she's totally normal. Uh, Pam, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm going to start out, let's get the Jeopardy stuff out of the way, because I actually, I want to ask you about some of this other stuff, but here's the question I've been wanting to ask you for a while. Uh, when you win kind of that college tournament and you have, you know, this amount of money set aside and you're young enough that you can pretty much do anything you want to do, how do you decide where to go from there? Because that's not a decision everyone gets to make. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, although it's not, you know, life-changing money. It's not like I could just retire to Tahiti um, or, <laughs> right. or anything like that. Um, what it did give me the freedom to do was do something like move to D.C. and work on the presidential campaign because, you know, the best way to get a job on a campaign is show up and volunteer. And if you don't have savings, you can't just say, okay, I'll work for free for a little while. So it enabled me to you know, do something not offbeat, but something – like that, whereas, you know, I, otherwise I would have had to get a real job right away. <laughs> what was it about uh, Howard Dean particularly that compelled you to want to work with his campaign? So I that summer I decided I really wanted to get involved with a campaign, and I looked at the candidates, and I had it narrowed down to Dean and Edwards, and then he was Howard Dean was speaking um, at Navy Pier in Chicago, and I went to see his speech. And obviously he's a very charismatic speaker, perhaps yeah. too charismatic, <laughs> right. um, but, but that, it really convinced me that he was, he was the right guy for the job. I also really liked that he wasn't a career politician. He had this whole life as a doctor um, and had expertise in some other field than, you know, being good on camera. So do you have any political aspirations for yourself or do you like working behind the scenes? I definitely prefer being behind the scenes. I, I thought about that a lot when I was working on his campaign and then after that on the Hill. Um, but I, I think it's a lot more fun to, to be pulling the strings than to be the person that <laughs> is up in front. <laughs> what did you learn from being behind the scenes on his campaign that maybe those of us who were casual observers as the cam- of the campaign, uh, we would never know? Well, I think part of the beauty of his campaign was also a large part of the downfall that they were willing to give, you know, smart, engaged people jobs that they were maybe not quite qualified for, um, me being one of them. You know, they were willing to, <laughs> to let me show up, and uh, ultimately I ended up being the press secretary for Virginia and um, Washington, D.C., and I had no press experience. I did have, you know, fortunately another volunteer 
had worked on the Songus campaign and, and was an expert. He was able to guide me, but it was definitely, you know, learning on the job. And I think that was true for a lot of positions. Um, and there is something to be said for having having experienced people running your campaign. Well, now that you have that experience, is that something you would ever do again with any candidate? Um, I would. I, I think that my problem is, though, is that if I worked for a candidate, I'd want to be, you know, all in. So obviously I was a fan of Obama and I thought about working for him um, with Chicago Connection and all, but I didn't have time at that at that point to just commit wholeheartedly to doing a campaign. And I feel like just making phone calls or doing something you know, small isn't, isn't how I'd want to be involved. I'd really want to go for it. So it would have to be somebody I was really passionate about. But if, yeah, if I ran I, across that candidate and I was able to, then yeah. I had a similar experience in uh, 2012, yeah, when he was running uh, for his second term. A friend of mine was working in his Chicago offices, and I got a chance to go into the Prudential building, go to the the floor that they took over. And it was amazing because I I had that same feeling where I'm like, I kind of have this, I totally want to drop everything I'm doing (laughs) and just work here, but I can't do that right now. But, oh, my God, this place seems so energetic, and, and you feel like you're fighting for something worthwhile. Yeah. Right, right. So let me ask you, after you did the campaign, uh, did you go to Harvard Law from there? I worked on the Hill for a year. Um, I was pretty fortunate in that um, after the quick um, and (laughs) unexpected demise of the campaign, um, I was able to, um, now with my newfound expertise at being a press secretary, get a job on the Hill. I like that you're laughing about the demise. <laughs> like it, it, And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like, you can joke about it now. I'm sure it was probably devastating to all of you when it all happened. Yeah, I mean, we were all like, okay, you know, he didn't win, but it was a strong showing. Everything's fine. And then we all went home and everything in that half an hour kind of went to hell. And <laughs> we were all really surprised and dismayed the next day. <laughs> We but, actually all stayed up for 24 hours because we were staging sort of this press event in our office because a lot of the a lot of the press, you know, was in D.C. So ours was the nearest office. So we did this sort of round the world phone-a-thon where we talked to Democrats abroad and phone banked in all the area co- or in all the yeah in all the time zones. Um, so basically, we had this 24-hour sleepover in the office that lots of press um, were covering, and then you know the culmination of that is. The right, right. It's so weird that uh, that's the one thing, because I think if you said, oh, there was a this presidential candidate, he went downhill fast. Oh, why? What did he do? Well, he was very enthusiastic. He that's yelled. the weirdest reason. <laughs> he yelled one time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was weird. So, so you went to the Hill for a year after that? Yes. And so what part um, of that, after you're surrounded by, by politics and all that, what makes you want to go into law school after all of that? Well, I'd always been interested in the intersection of psychology and law. That was what I did for my undergrad thesis. Um, But then I sort of got sidetracked into this whole campaign and and politics and really enjoyed that. Um, And at that point, I was like, well, law school kind of makes sense for that. If I I decide I want to do something in political work as a career, law school still makes sense. Um, That's sort of, you know, why it, it still seems to be something I should do at that point. Also... Being a press secretary on the Hill was not as exciting as being a press secretary on a campaign at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm sure it's different if you're, you know, working for the Speaker of the House or something, but otherwise it was pretty slow, actually, especially in comparison with, you know. Yeah, unless there's some, 
unless there's a scandal going on or something, I'm sure your conversations aren't that exciting <laughs> right. on a day-to-day basis. So, so law school made sense. Once I got to law school, I realized that the things I liked about politics weren't the things you needed a law degree for. Um, and I realized that the psych and law combination was really what I was interested in anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you graduate from law school, so you have a Harvard Law School degree, but uh, at what point after you graduated did you think, okay, I don't need to do anything that requires this particular degree, or I want to change tracks and try something different? So while I was there, I was doing psychology and law research, and I was pretty sure that that was what I wanted to do. Um, But I had an encounter with the head of career services um, in my final year, in which he told me I was, and I quote, ruining my life and wasting my Harvard degree (laughs) if I I went and got a PhD then and didn't, you know, give working at a firm a try. And, you know, since he's the head of career services at Harvard, I figured, well, maybe he knows what he's talking about. Um, So I I did work as a practicing attorney at a firm for a year. Hated it just as much as I expected I was going to. um, And you know, got out of that as quickly as possible and fortunately ended up with a really nice job at Northwestern Law School doing psychology and law research, which enabled me to then get into this, you know, really good psychology program. You should call that career counselor and be like, well, I was on the Friendly Atheist podcast, so I didn't (laughs) waste anything. That will get you nowhere. (laughs) Well, it's actually funny because I'm on the law school job market now and then one of the schools that you know has reached out and asked for further materials which is you know a sign of interest is harvard um so awesome. you know if i ended up being a professor there i guess <laughs> if, they look. if only you cross paths with that career counselor again <laughs> fist shaking <laughs> only at harvard would they say if you get a phd somewhere else you are wasting your life <laughs> yeah especially at princeton yeah right <laughs> so let's talk about the you co-authored a research paper that actually got a lot of buzz recently. Um, so tell us what that paper was about, what you discovered or what you what you uh, figured out, and why is it so important for us to know? So the paper was about students taking notes on laptops versus students taking notes in longhand. And um, my co-author and I ended up running these studies partially as a result of our personal experiences. I was TAing for his like 101 class, and usually I would bring my computer to class to take notes on that, so, you know, I'd have them if students had questions later, um, but one day I didn't have my computer for some reason, and I took notes in a notebook, and I really felt like I got so much more out of the lecture that day. Um, I told the professor that, and then a few days later, he was like, yeah, I was in a faculty meeting and realized that I was writing everything down that people were saying on my laptop, but I had no idea what they were actually talking about. <laughs> So since we both had these intuitions, we thought we should test that and see if um, our intuitions actually have some basis in reality. So, so you did some research on this, and and that's exactly what you guys figured out, that, yeah, it's not just you two, it's a whole bunch of people who mm-hmm. feel this way. Yeah, and not only do they feel that way, it actually works that way. So that the students who were taking longhand notes were doing better on our exams of them, um, particularly on conceptual questions, so things where they really needed to understand the content and not just regurgitate the facts that were in the lecture. Um, And these results seem to be um, due to the fact that laptop note-takers have a tendency to mindlessly transcribe everything that the professor is saying, Um, and so they don't really have to process it or understand it. They're just 
typing away like a stenographer. Um, and so they have this like really high degree of verbatim overlap with the lecture in their notes. Long-term note-takers, on the other hand, they can't write it down that quickly. Um, so they're forced to process it and decide what's important, and that processing seems to serve them well in the long run. Um, so we also, uh, when one of the things we tried to intervene and tell the laptop note-takers not to take notes that way, that, you know, it was bad for them, but they were completely unable to reduce their verbatim um, they were still writing down every in longhand yeah, everything the professor was exactly saying. Exactly the same. Exactly the same as the students who didn't get this instruction telling them that they were going to do worse um, if they took notes that way. So um, I'm still hopeful that there may be some way that we can get people to use computers in a more effective fashion, but mm-hmm. it's going to take something more intrusive than just telling them not to not to do that. Um, so I think we weren't surprised by those findings. One thing we were surprised by was. In our last study, we brought them back a week later, and some of them got to study their notes, and some of them didn't. And we figured that perhaps laptop note-takers would actually get a boost when they got to study their notes, because it has more content there. So, you know, maybe maybe it's not really a big deal in the real world, because, you know, all the students are taking notes on the laptop, but once they take them home, they'll read them, and they'll do just fine. Um, but what we found actually was that long-hand note-takers still continue to do better, and at that point, it was actually factual and conceptual questions. So it really seems like if they didn't process the content initially, um, having all that written down wasn't helping them later. They weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the notes weren't helping them understand at that point. So what did you learn? So this is kind of something that kind of went viral in a way that I'm sure most studies tend not to. Did you learn anything by seeing your own work go viral? Did people draw the right conclusions from it? Because, you know, people tend to read, you know, nobody here, of course, but might read a headline and then pretend they know exactly what the paper is about. Did you encounter that? And did you learn anything about how people digest content in that way? Um, it was sort of surprising how little background work people seemed to do before talking to me. Um, a lot of them hadn't read the paper, as you said. Um, a lot of them had no idea that I wasn't a professor, which is always an awkward um, <laughs> thing to have to correct. Um and I think people always want to, to draw really big conclusions from things um, or, or they want to, especially these days, talk about, you know, what's different in the brain or there are different areas that are active. And, you know, we didn't have people in an fMRI scanner, so I can't really say. Yeah, that's what's not what you were researching. Going on in the brain. Right. It is where I yeah. took a grad school class once where the most effective thing we had is. They had all the notes that people in the class took the previous year. We had photocopies of that. And these are really nice notes. They had a whole system Mm -hmm. for taking the notes. So we got all those photocopies. And so I had last year's notes in front of me. And then as the professor was lecturing, I could write in anything. Because most of their lectures never change year after year. So I had all that in front of me. And I could take longhand notes on top of that. And then I kind of had two different things to study from. And I felt like that was awesome yeah. that that system was in place. And, um, yeah, writing it down for myself where I can't write it verbatim mm-hmm. and I just have to jot a, a paraphrase of what they were saying. Right. Yeah, I have to go through that process before I write it down. And mm-hmm. it made it a lot easier. Yeah. So where cool. do you yeah. where do you go from here in terms of research? Is there any specific thing you would like to research or is it just, oh, if this project comes up, maybe I'll tackle that one? Um. You mean just in terms of, of this line of research? Or yeah, in, general, in this or line of research, and then we'll talk about the broader. Um, in this line of research, I guess 
two things that are interesting to me. Um, one of them is perhaps the use of stylus technology is going to give people the best of both worlds. I think it's a very hard sell to get people to go back to notebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, but since we haven't found a good way to intervene in their typing to get them to slow down and process things, um, maybe stylus technology, which is getting better and live scribe and things like that, might be the best of both worlds because they are forced to take the longhand notes, but they have the electronic record later. Um, and, you know, I, some of them have things where they can record little segments of the lecture too. So something like that, um, looking at whether people who are taking notes with the stylus are doing just as well as longhand note takers or if there's some difference there mm-hmm. would be interesting and, you know, useful to know for mm-hmm. how to advise people in the real world. Um, the second thing is more, I guess, just interesting to me since I'm coming, coming from a law school and hopefully going back to a law school, um, they have open book, open notes exams generally. Mm-hmm. And what would be really nice to show, um, I would be surprised if we, sh- we showed it, but I was surprised at what we found when they got to study the notes, so who knows. Um, it would be really neat to show that, you know, even if they have open book, open notes, that the people who took notes on the laptops are still doing worse because they aren't really understanding. <laughs> they just have all this content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we I saw that in my classes as well. You as a teacher, it's a game you play with the kids. It's like, oh, you we have a quiz right now. Oh, don't worry. It's open book and open note. And as a teacher, you're like, I know this isn't going to help you because if you don't know the stuff, you're still screwed. Right, especially in math. That's yeah. Gonna be... yeah, what are you going to do? Look at an old proof? Like, mm-hmm. good luck with that if you didn't understand it already. Yeah. Actually, going back to my earlier question, did people... Um, did people jump to conclusions about about this study in a way that completely missed the point? Like, I feel my first thought was like, oh, you know, before I actually, like, read through it, my first thought was, you know, of course people who are on computers aren't paying as much attention because they've got... Facebook open. Facebook open and, and Gchat, and I'm sure other people felt the same way, even though that's clearly not what you found. It didn't... That That's right. 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 That, people did bring that up, and I, I said, there's, yes, there's definitely several studies out there showing just that, that multitasking is bad. Students who are on the web in class are doing worse. Um, but, you know, then I sort of got to um, pivot on the question and be like, what we were trying to show was that even when students are using laptops as they're intended, mm-hmm. they might still be um, harming performance. Mm-hmm. So, so you could always guess, steer the conversation know, back to what you really did. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, being a press secretary is maybe useful in the long run, too. <laughs> right. Who knows? There you go. I just feel like everybody just wanted to say, like, see, kids these days, I've been telling you all along. <laughs> and that's not the issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about your broader research interests then? So most of my other stuff is unsurprisingly law-related. Um, a couple things that I'm looking at um, are, well, one of them is when victims take a more active role in their own justice process, they, they feel better about themselves. Victims really like um, being able to play an active role because it makes them, you know, feel more powerful and agentic and whatnot. Um, but I'm finding in my studies that when people see victims as agentic, then they see them as less good victims. So they blame them more. Mm. Um, they give them less money, things like that. Um, so that's is there an example of that happening right now or that that uh, we might have heard of, like uh, a victim who is taking an active role in pers- uh, prosecution? That is an interesting question, and that would probably be a really good lead-in for a paper if I could find a case <laughs> out there where it seemed like that was that was the uh, that was what was going on. Um, 
at the moment, these are just, you know, studies I've been running where, you know, you know, some people are given a scenario where the victim plays an active role, um, you know, sues mm. the company, whatever, versus their insurance company sues or their boss sues in an employment um, situation. Um, and, and when the victim is the one playing the active role, that they do worse in terms of financial compensation and, you know, they get blamed more for situations where it might be arguably both parties' fault. Things like that, but I, I think your point is really good, and I'm going to go look for <laughs> real world examples. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is this fits, but I was uh, reading up on this not long ago. But the Lily Ledbetter case, where she knew she was getting discriminated for pay, uh-huh. um, but she mm-hmm. not only fought for it. I mean, she filed the lawsuit. It went to the Supreme Court, and I wonder if there were people looking at her saying, like, "Well, I don't want to hire her now," or right. that, uh, "Oh, she's pretty well off; she'll be fine." I don't know if that fits at all or not. Sure. Yeah. Um, I will look at that. Um, (laughs) The other thing I'm looking at, the thing that is my job doc paper is about, well, this maybe isn't as interesting to non-law people, but it's about attempt law and different standards. And there's one standard, it's sort of the majority in this country right now. And when people use that standard, they apply it really inconsistently. um, And they're more um, swayed by external information that they shouldn't be considering like the moral character of the person who's accused and things like that. Um, and there's another standard that used to be the law, um, but sort of the minority now. And when people use that, they seem to be applying it more consistently. So that's, you know, good for uh, due process and equal protection stuff. Um, and people aren't using this inappropriate information. So I'm advocating for a return to that old standard. But yeah, sorry, that was super long. No, that works. Um, I saw a video where you were talking about the most awkward place someone recognized you from Jeopardy. Um, I don't know if you want to, do you want to share that story with us? Sure. Um, I think I know what video you're talking about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, this is after the college tournament. So I guess I was still in college in Chicago and I was in Victoria's Secret um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and like holding a stack of underwear um, and the person who recognized me is a guy <laughs> and he's was like hopefully oh, they're with someone else <laughs> no he wasn't um, oh, he was shopping for someone else uh, but okay. no, he sure was he was a guy by himself <laughs> uh, so yeah I thanked him for his you know <laughs> being a fan but you know it, it's just carrying on a conversation when you're holding a bunch of underwear yeah <laughs> not creepy in the least um and i wonder if uh i i would think that usually when people recognize you it's it's usually something good and it's not nearly as creepy slash awkward at least i hope that's the case uh i think it's some and some i i, I do have some you know, positive recognition things, one of which I actually got to tell in the tournament that was happening this year. I don't know if you saw that one, but I was walking um, in New York with uh, Brad Rutter, who has won, you know, more than $4 million in Jeopardy, you know, won more than anyone else. Um, He had just won this tournament um, back then for $2 million, and he'd been getting recognized a lot. Um, And we're walking down the street and hear somebody go, hey, Jeopardy, Jeopardy. And he turns around, he's like, oh, yeah. Uh, and he's like, you're that girl who was on Jeopardy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was pretty awesome. That is pretty nice. <laughs> Take that, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is there anything, those of us who watch the show, uh, what do you think as a viewer we don't really understand about what's happening in the middle of the game, during the game? Like, what did you learn from being right then and there? Like, right there in the present? Like, Alec Trebek's probably shit-talking to all the contestants. Yeah, like, is he trash-talking to everyone, (laughs) making faces while uh, he's reading the clues? Because we never really see him. And I wonder if he's just, like, sticking up a middle finger as he reads the clues. Because he totally could, and I would never know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He could totally get away with that, and you would be the only person to know, and we'd all be like, why are you all, like, looking at him weird? That's true. It all goes by pretty fast, though. Sometimes they do edit stories. I swear I, I swear I'm not making this up. This definitely happened in the college tournament, but I told a really silly story about um Irish dancing on a table at Loyola University before I went there. Um, <laughs> I don't know why somebody scared me or something. And I was like, well whatever. You know, nobody here knows me. And then I ended up going there the next year and people remembered that I was <laughs> <that> girl. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> Where to God, Alex says it would only have been embarrassing if you didn't have any clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> so they cut that from the broadcast. Oh no! <laughs> but it definitely happened. Um, so I guess I guess that there must be more incidents like that that happen behind the scenes. Other than that, um, the buzzer is evil. Um, <laughs> really evil. It doesn't you know? act the way you want it to act as fast as you want it to act. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of the questions, everybody's buzzing in, and you're like, "Come on, no, I know this." And, you know, somebody else got in before you. Um, so that's super frustrating for everyone, but I think... Yeah, I'm sure that's a universal thing for all contestants yeah. there. <laughs> As someone who uh, obviously knows a lot of, literally, trivia, and someone who has <laughs> engaged in some of these bigger, serious concepts, uh, what do you read on a regular basis? Like, what do you uh, read or watch or listen to that informs your worldview? So I will confess that I was a lot better at reading before I got to grad school. Even in law school, I did a fair amount of, you know, outside fiction and nonfiction reading. Um, I know what grad school is supposed to be about, you know, focusing down on this very, you know, specific, minute issue and (laughs) to the the exclusion of everything else. So um, I haven't been as good at keeping up at books um, these days. Um, But I think that things that I read in high school and in college just have really stuck with me. Um, so I guess having a broad, you know, a really broad range of things I read back then and I read, you know, voraciously um, was useful in that respect. Um, these days, I guess, I do like reading longer things, those shorter things. I know everyone's like, oh, on the web, you know, it's all these snippets of information, but I really like the articles on like long form and long reads because, um, they go in depth and you know things you wouldn't otherwise think about. I read the New Yorker. Um, what do yeah. I watch? I don't have cable anymore. I watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I start to Insta paper everything I see nowadays. Like this is long and it's really good. I'll read it later. Yeah, and hopefully I'll. Get oh yeah, to that it is one thing someday. that I do regret. <laughs> and maybe when I live someplace, you know, more permanently, I'll get you know a paper subscription again to like the actual paper. Yeah, because I feel like that forced you to read articles that you you know don't pick out. Like if I go to NewYorkTimes.com, you know, I'll read things that you know the headline sounds interesting to me. But you know, if I read the things that don't immediately grab me they're probably really interesting as well and mm-hmm. that's you know when you've got the whole paper in front of you yeah it's easier you to know. just carry with you somewhere mm-hmm. um i had yeah, one and read it all i had one final uh question for you which is 
you went uh you went to a Catholic high school and you went to Loyola, which is I mean at least on the surface a religious school. Um, <laughs> but you know I I know Loyola uh, sorry I know Loyola even though it's a religious school it's it's not really preachy religion yeah. it's not that type of school and I wonder if uh, what the religion factor was when you went to these places did that make any difference in where you went or were they just they're both really good schools and you got out of them what you did. Um. So I guess high school was, I didn't have as much leeway at that point to choose. Um, when I started high school, I was living in the city, and I'd gone to Catholic school all the way through, so it's pretty much, you know, the system set up to funnel you into a Catholic high school. If you wanted to enroll in, you know, a selective enrollment public high school would be a whole separate issue. Um, not to mention that my mom and dad both worked in the public school system, and my mom was pretty adamant that she didn't want me to go into the Chicago public school. <laughs> like, to the extent that she paid my tuition, my dad yeah. was like, no, we should be supporting the, you know, the institution we work for. Um, and she's like, no. <laughs> she, she, had, she visited schools as part of her job, and she was like, no, just no. So, so I guess that was sort of... So the school you went to was a really good one, though. Yeah, um, and then Lola, I... I didn't choose it because it was religious and I ended up there sort of, not exactly happenstance, but it was sort of a long and winding road that got me there. Um, I do think that of, of religious orders, the Jesuits are by far the coolest um, <laughs> because they, they really respect academics and knowledge and understanding. And, you know, I think that their idea that, that worship can be just doing what you do well, and that, you know, doing what you do for the greater glory of God is worship. You don't have to do anything other than that. Yeah. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so, so that was my first experience with the Jesuits, but all in all, they're pretty cool. <laughs> Very nice. Well, Pam, thank you so much for uh, joining us and talking to us, and wish you the best of luck in the future. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Pam. Absolutely. You've been listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.